I arrived to my nonprofit CEO job with zero fundraising experience, like really none. But I was determined, earnest, passionate about the mission, and we only had $360 in the bank with payroll around the corner. So let's just say I came out of the box as a pretty fearless fundraiser. I learned a lot about donors during my ED tenure, my role as a board fundraiser, and as a political fundraiser. There were many wildly altruistic donors who gave from the heart and were deeply committed to our work because they believed in the institution or the candidate. And then there were others, like lots of others, who gave for different reasons. Well, I'm giving because I really like you, Joan. Or, okay, so how much do I have to give in order to get how many tickets to the gala at the Kodak Theater in Hollywood? And yes, I did get, this gift is not going to overhead, is it? But my favorite was the donor who gave every year, deeply committed to the cause, or so I thought. And she called like clockwork three weeks before our annual gala. My assistant, Eric, would make the slow march into my office to tell me she was on the phone. We both knew. She wanted to know what celebrity would be at her table. She was usually kind of subtle about it, but this one time, not so much. Come on, Joan, she said. You know this is why I give so generously to Glad. I couldn't help myself. Huh. Barbara, I, I, I don't think I did know that. I, I thought you gave because you so deeply believed in our work. There was a really long pause. Yes, yes, of course, she said. Now, now, could we review the list of celebrities? Okay, these are some examples of what effective philanthropy does not look like. My guest today wants us all to know what it does look like. And the more our sector knows what it looks like, the stronger our sector gets, the more it's fueled, and the greater impact it has on addressing the many ills facing our society. Yep, there are folks who give for the wrong reason. And yes, my celebrity story was a fairly outrageous exception, but so many folks who give wonder what it looks like to be effective. They wonder how their dollars, will, regardless of the numbers of zeros on the gift, can have on real and lasting impact. For those who invite folks to give and for those who give wonder, no more. My guest today runs the Center for Effective Philanthropy and knows more than just a thing or two on this topic. I'm so very pleased to be bringing him to you today. Our sector needs his insights very, very badly. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, author, blogger, and founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab gets it. She is here to help. My guest today is Phil Buchanan, president of the Council for Effective Philanthropy. He's a passionate advocate for the importance of philanthropy and the nonprofit sector, and he's deeply committed to the cause of helping foundations and individual donors to maximize their impact. Hired in 2001 as the organization's first CEO, Phil has led the growth of the council into the leading provider of data and insight on philanthropic effectiveness. Council has been widely credited with bringing the voices of stakeholders to funders and with contributing to an increased emphasis on key elements of effectiveness. Phil is the author of Giving Done Right, Effective Philanthropy, and Making Every Dollar Count. He's also the co-founder of Youth Truth, an initiative of the councils designed to harness student perceptions to help educators and funders accelerate and improvements in K through 12 schools and classrooms. And in 2016, he was named the Nonprofit Times Influencer of the Year. He also serves on the board of directors of Philanthropy Massachusetts. Phil, I'm really happy you're here to share your insights with our listeners today. Welcome. Thanks, Joan. Happy to be here. So a few years ago, I wrote a book about nonprofit leadership, and I feel really quite good about the gap that it filled. Your new book, Giving Done Right, is really good. I really enjoyed it, 
and I'm really glad you wrote it. But what was the catalyst? Why, why did you write it? What gap did you see that it was going to fill? I, I think that I was motivated by um, some level of frustration with folks making the same predictable mistakes again and again, uh, often born of a sort of simplistic uh, attempt to foist over from the business sector whatever frameworks or concepts had made sense in that competitive world uh, to the world of philanthropy. So I, I felt that uh, somebody needed to say, this is not helpful, uh, that the nonprofit world is distinctly different, and that to be a good donor, there are some things you really need to understand about that unique landscape to do it well. I think the other catalyst, though, was the sense of inspiration that I feel about what is possible through good giving, supporting really effective nonprofits. And so I wanted to tell both those stories, the cautionary tales, as well as the inspiring examples to hopefully give uh, donors a head start in, in, in their efforts to have an impact. Um, did you have in your mind's eye um, sort of the avatar of the ideal reader when you wrote the book? Yeah, I did, although it evolved over time. At, here at CEP, the Center for Effective Philanthropy, we are focused um, well, we have been focused primarily on institutional, don uh, institutional donors, uh, big foundations and the individuals behind them. But I came to believe that perhaps there was an opportunity to bridge insights that might be useful for both the program officer at the private or community foundation and the individual donor. Uh, and that what it takes to be effective is actually not that different uh, in either of those uh, chairs. And so that was my hope. Really, anyone, whether in their professional or personal life, focused on giving and serious enough about it to be willing to read a book about it. <laughs> um, I don't think they're very different. I, I, and I... Um... I, I think that's absolutely true. And the inspiration part of it really comes out in the book that you've written here. So let's talk about some of the um, the key takeaways from the book. And maybe we could just start about um, the origin of the word philanthropy. And I, um, it wasn't really all that long ago that I realized the origins of the, the Greek origin of the word philanthropy and that it actually means love of humankind. And I, I often think that if all of us could just start there when we think about giving or asking for that matter, what a difference it would make. It's kind of, a, the, kind of an interesting way to frame giving in that context, don't you think? I do. And, and it's interesting because I think there's a lot of sort of false dichotomies in the world of, of giving. And one is that it's the, the head or the heart, uh, that either you're motivated by love uh, of, of your fellow human, or you're motivated by some sort of cold analysis. And, and I, I've really come to believe that um, it is the heart that motivates you to use your head, uh, that it is often uh, one of the stories that I, or people who I talk about in the book, who uh, lots of folks have written about, although he's a pretty private person, I understand, is Tim Gill. Uh -huh. uh, who is the donor behind the Gill Foundation, and who, and that foundation played a crucial role in the marriage equality uh, effort. And Indeed. I remember when 
my colleagues interviewed the former executive director of the Gill Foundation, the late Roger McFarland, a number of years ago. Yep, I knew and, him well. And Roger described Tim's frustration with seeing uh, that all of his philanthropy wasn't adding up to or leading to what he had hoped and how that compelled him to get much more rigorous and strategic in his approach, much more analytic. Uh, it was the heart and the desire for impact, the belief in the importance of um, equal opportunity for LGBT people, in his case, that motivated him to become much more structured and, and analytical in, and ultimately, you know, Gill Foundation and Haas Jr. and others uh, contributed to one of the great successes in really highly effective philanthropy. So, so I, I think that um, it's important, you know, to tap into the, to the heart, but, but also to be smart. So, so when you use words like structured and rigorous and smart, it sort of, uh, it leads you to um, words like business, right? Right. <laughs> and, you know, I came to the nonprofit sector from corporate America. And, you know, I often thought early on that asking for support would be akin to asking someone to invest in kind of a startup. And you do a really nice job of uh, busting that myth. So I'm going to, I'm going to let you do that for our listeners right now. Yeah, well, I, right. I, I think it's exactly what you said, which is people tend to equate, um, business with effective, but then if you stop and think about it and think about your last five or 10 interactions with businesses, maybe you wouldn't do that. Um, so it's like Jim Collins has said, most businesses are mediocre. Uh, and, and so really what we want to focus on is what is effective. And um, that requires thinking logically about what will lead to what, uh, but, but it, it's going to play out very differently in a philanthropic context. So to, to give one example, please uh, strategy in, I used to be a strategy consultant in the corporate world, in the corporate world, you want your strategy to be yours alone. You wouldn't want your competitors to understand your strategy or really any other actors. Well, in the world of giving, it's, it's like exactly the opposite. If your strategy is yours alone, it's going to fail. Uh, it's all about collaborative dynamics because it's not zero sum and because you need many, many different actors and entities working together to achieve anything. So, in, in, so that, would be, that would be one example. Another example of the way in which giving and investing are, are quite different is just the approach to performance measurement. You, you and I can judge... Um, our 401k returns by the the same measures, even if we're investing in in very different uh, industries or very different uh, funds. But you and I can't compare our philanthropic uh, gifts in very different fields by a single common unit of measurement. Which is not to say measurement's not important; it is, but it's just much more complicated, and it's not captured in financial statements or in a single analog to ROI. It's so interesting too, because, um, uh, the, the whole issue of competition in a sector, you, you bust that. If you, if, if, when you say it's not a zero sum game, you just bust it right wide open. And I feel like, you know, you're leading, you and others are leading with that voice, but that's so many, so many, 
honestly, so many boards of directors uh, drive and CEOs drive in the competitive direction rather than the collaboration um, uh, land, which, uh, by the way, on a just as a digression, I think is one of the reasons we don't see uh, more effective mergers and acquisitions in the sector as well. Oh, I, I totally agree. And I, I think, right, we're all humans. And, and so career careerism sometimes gets in the way and, and, and the, the desire for, for credit or attribution. And, and I, people ask me all the time about, um, well, who are the donors or foundations you really admire? And so often there are folks nobody has ever heard of. And yeah. it is that humility and willingness to let others be front and center that actually makes them effective. Yeah, so interesting. Um, so, so uh, give us some thoughts about what, you know, sort of what it takes from the from all the work that you've done and your experience and research. Um, what what do you think it does take to be an effective philanthropist? Well, at the most fundamental level, I think it takes humility, uh, a, a willingness to understand first off that people working in nonprofits are working in some of the toughest jobs. So while they are often portrayed, I think, in an unfortunate and very negative and inaccurate light, uh, as if to work in a nonprofit is somehow to recognize that you couldn't make it in business or something, when it's in fact the opposite, that to, that to be the executive director of a community-based nonprofit working with at-risk youth, for example, takes everything that we're uh, running an equivalent size business would take. Right. And a ton more. And so. And more, right. If, and more. That's so right. Yeah. And if donors don't understand that, then they can't be effective because they can't support those leaders and those organizations in the way that they need. Uh, so, so, I mean, there's a lot I could say about what it takes to be effective. And, and there's a whole bunch of different questions you have to ask yourself about goals, about strategy, about implementation, about measurement and assessment. Uh, but at, at the most fundamental level, it is that humility uh, to recognize not just the knowledge in the front lines of nonprofit staff, but also the knowledge and expertise in the people whose lives you might be trying to improve, right? And uh, who are, after all, the best experts on their own experience. And that too often gets overlooked as well. I the, the other piece about humility is um, being humble enough to know what you do not know and to be Absolutely. willing to be a learner about the organization and the sector. Because the, the, the more open you get, uh, allow yourself to be about what you don't know, the more honestly, the closer and closer you become to the organization. I, I, I read a book over the winter break called The Library. Is it called The Library Book? Uh, Susan Orleans, who wrote The Orchid Thief. And it wasn't a, 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 in any way intended to be a call to action to support your local public library. But the connection between homelessness and libraries is stunning to me. Like right. I nearly fell out of my lounge chair on a warm beach, right? And, and to think, wow, it, it, it made so much sense and it was such an aha moment, but you have to actually be open to learning. And I think right. that, you know, and, um, and I think that's another component of the humility. Now I wanted to, I, I didn't want to let you, let you go on the sort of the, 
this kind of myth or perception about um, about folks who who run nonprofits. Um, uh, and I. Uh, I think there are, and, and I think this is what I mean, but the opposite of humility is givers who think they know best, right? right? They're not open to that. So, so there's, so we have givers who think they know best and there's, there's, uh, uh, there's CEOs who think they know best and don't uh, really are sort of skeptical that the donor is sort of anything but a check, right? right? So how do, how do you make a partnership when there's sadly too often kind of a skepticism on both, on both parts of the equation? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think it's easy, and I think it does require um, folks being willing to get out of their comfort zone and get out of their office. Or for donors, um, obviously, not every donor is going to do this, but at a, at a, if they're significantly enough committed to a particular organization, uh, then they should spend time at their organ at that organization. Uh, you know, they should spend time with assuming that assuming that the organization has sort of end constituents who they're serving, talking to those uh, individuals. I am struck by how often I will be introduced to some new entrant into the world of philanthropy, um, usually a person who really wants to do it right, uh, but who doesn't really know much, but suddenly finds themselves worth umpteen zillion dollars. And I will say, um, oh, it's great to talk to you. You know, tell me who you're talking to. And, and they will talk about the consultants and the other donors and the experts and, and sort of look at me like, isn't that great? Uh, aren't I doing a great job? And, and I will say, have you spent any time with folks running nonprofits, uh, like maybe some smaller community-based nonprofits or with the people who those nonprofits serve. And I, I think so much uh, can be gained from that kind of time intensive, just shadowing someone for a little while uh, and, and building that relationship and trust and understanding what it's like to do these jobs. Right. And, uh, and I think that the, the executive directors have to... Um have to also be a little vulnerable too, right? right? I think that it is not, uh, it's not show and tell. That's right. And, um, you know, you said what you were just talking about. I, I, I do a lot of work with organizations, but sort of as a kind of their boards and their staff sometimes together, because I think of a really effective nonprofit, kind of like a twin engine jet. And, um, it's actually, uh, I am gobsmacked ha at how often board members do not touch the work. Right. So right, even the, the folks closest to the organizations that are supposed to be the most visible and vocal champions. Totally. And I, I think that's right. And I think you're absolutely right to to say executive directors. And I think this is both true for nonprofits and foundations. Um, too many see their boards as a group to be managed and um, too many board meetings are sort of pretty scripted and nothing spontaneous happens. And everybody's surprised when somebody says something that nobody was expecting. And then they think the meeting didn't go well because it didn't go exactly as they had planned. But actually the, the best meetings where you're really getting value out of people is when they don't go as planned because people contribute in ways that you hadn't expected, or you're thinking about your strategy as challenged. And 
And that requires a kind of trust. And like you say, Joan, I think it's absolutely right, a willingness to be vulnerable and take some risks as the executive director and not just uh, see the board as, like I said, a, a group to be either managed or, or, or meetings as something to be sort of like, oh, gee, we got through that one. Uh-huh. Glad it's over. Don't have to think about another one for three or four months. But instead, think of the board as a group of and assemble a board that really is a diverse group of people who think in different ways, who can push you and make you better at your job. And, and it's, that's easy to say and really hard to do, but it can be done. And I think the very best leaders do that. The humility piece uh, is also about um, both board members and CEOs, I find, are generally sort of type A, high-performing people. They're accustomed to being successful. They're accustomed to getting 95s on their book reports. And so a site visit, you have to get a 95 on that, right? Right. (laughs) Whether the foundation comes to visit, you you know, you want to crush it. Board meeting, you want to crush it so that your board thinks, oh my goodness, she just walks on water. And um, unless you actually check some of that at the door, um, you can't actually build the kind of relationship that is going to keep that, engage those board members or create the kind of partnership with a funder that's so essential. You know, I, I, I have an op-ed in my head that's making its way onto my laptop about site visits, funder site visits, and all the questions I, I always was really surprised no one ever asked me. And, um, and I think that when I write it, I think they're going to be executive directors who can be horrified because they wouldn't want to be asked those questions. You like know? what, Joan? Um, oh, how about this? I actually would like to meet not just with you, Joan, but I'd like to meet with you and your board chair together. Right. And I'd like to understand what your relationship is like. How often do you meet? Well, you know, what do you, what do you all talk about? How do right. you lead together? Right. I, I often think that that that, you, that that's the, such a pivotal relationship in an organization and funders come in and they never actually really the only the only thing they do. Many, many, not all. Right. Yeah. Is they check two boxes or do 100 percent of them give. And is there, uh, you know, some kind of diversity that that isn't embarrassing? And, right. right. And that's what the and those are the boxes that CEOs think they have to check as opposed to, you know, what is this relationship you have with your board and, you know, those kinds of things. So, right. um, but I, I you, you can never lose by being vulnerable. You can never lose by touching the work ever, right. ever, ever, ever. So um, let's let's talk about overhead for just a minute. Um, yes. Uh, because you can't get too far into any conversation about effective philanthropy without talking about it. So maybe this will seem obvious to some, but why is asking about the percentage of your gift that goes to overhead? Um, the person who asks that, is that a, is that a person who's going to last as a funder? Like sort of, is that a relationship you can actually cultivate and steward? Like, how do you make that work? Right, right. Uh, I think, I think, I think the only way to make it work is to, is to try to, is to try to ask them why they're asking. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and, and I think, um, and then help them understand why that isn't what they really want to know. Uh, you know, so, so I think again, it is this desire for like the simplistic, uh, analog to ROI, the one measure against which we can compare the, education focused organization with the climate change organization. Oh, administrative cost ratios. We can compare them all. So, so it's fun time with ratios, uh, but it doesn't tell you anything. 
because what you really need to know is what is the organization trying to achieve? What are the results relative to their to those goals? How are they pursuing that? And 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 how does that look? And then um, and then the and then trust the leadership to allocate the budget as they see fit. And the focus on overhead to the extent that it leads people away from things like uh, paying what they need to pay to attract and retain the best staff or investing in technology, it undermines the efficacy in pursuit of goals. So one of the things that has shocked me is that um, across at Center for Effective Philanthropy, we've surveyed tens of thousands of nonprofits. And across those organizations, it's the same frustration, no matter what area they work in, no matter what size. And as I've shadowed different nonprofits, I've heard it expressed uh, in the same ways. We desperately need long-term, flexible commitments so that we can hire and retain uh, the people that we need to do this difficult work and so that we can invest in the engine of the organization so that it can be more effective. So um, that's what folks want, uh, not a conversation about about overhead, which by the way, people don't even define consistently, even, you know, auditing firms define it differently. It just is not a healthy uh, road to, to go down. Yes, there are certain warning signs in a budget. If, if somebody is spending an a absurd amount of money on a third-party for-profit fundraiser, yeah, you, you need to zero in on that. But barring that kind of thing, you really need uh, to focus on the, on the organization's success or lack of success in pursuing its outcome goals, not how it's allocating its budget or what it's paying its uh, folks, assuming it's within some you know realm of reasonableness. I totally, yeah, I totally agree with all that. And I, um, and I, I think about technology actually as a specific issue because I think to myself, I would give to technology and social media at an organization in a New York minute if I had a strategy that was that they were going to execute because technology and social media is the way you build the army of the engaged people who will you can mobilize who you can attract as donors right and so how people can ever think about that as overhead is just completely it gets tagged as marketing when to me right. it's actually core to your program is have you built a sufficient army of engaged people because people are people's power right in a nonprofit right. organization right so um I would love to let's bring some of this to life for just a couple of minutes. Um, when we talk about strategic giving, I wonder if there's an a, example that you can offer to bring that to life for folks who are listening. Sure. I mean, uh, one of the examples I, I write about in the book is uh, the Stewart Foundation's work on child welfare and particularly trying to get better life outcomes for, for foster kids. So, this is a couple of decades ago, they're looking at the data, realizing when people age out of the foster care system at age 18, a quarter of boys end up incarcerated within six months. Uh, and they say, boy, there, there must be a better way. Uh, and so the, the staff there, a, a woman named uh, uh, Pat uh, R- Reynolds Hubbard and, uh, and Christy Pitchell, the executive director, they say, well, are there any examples where there are better outcomes? Uh, And uh, they find some examples where uh, in other communities, uh, folks are actually having success getting older foster kids adopted or connected to a caring adult who takes some responsibility. 
and and at that point, I mean, I happen to know because my wife was clinical social worker, actually working in uh, in a in a um, nonprofit that was for kids who'd been abused or neglected, and 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 there was this kind of conventional wisdom that past a certain age, you give up. These kids are never going to get adopted. Nobody wants an older foster kid. As brutal as that sounds, that was what people thought. And the folks at Stewart said, well, maybe not. And they iterated in a very discreet way an approach to see whether they could have some success finding uh, adults who would either adopt or take some kind of lifelong responsibility for these kids. Often it was relatives. And they had a lot of success. And so they slowly started to build that out. Uh, And then they realized that in the state of California, there weren't the data systems that they needed to monitor uh, their success. And so they piloted uh, at UC Berkeley, I believe, a system that eventually got taken over by the state to track uh, outcomes for foster youth. Uh, they, They then added to that the supports for the foster kids to go on to college recognizing that they're not going to have the same kinds of supports uh, that the rest of us would take for granted as coming from our family. Every step of the way, they piloted, they saw what they learned, they were data-driven, they were in touch with the young people speaking to the foster kids about their experience, and they were very, very successful to the point that um, the number of young people in the foster care system in California has dropped dramatically and their model actually was adopted uh, nationally. And so that's what good strategy looked like. And as I said in the book, when we approached Christy Pitchell and asked her if we could write a case study about what the Stewart Foundation had done, her first response was no. I mean, it wasn't us who really did it. Uh Uh, There were so many folks involved because they had built these coalitions working together and uh, they had a humility about it. It was not about them getting credit uh, for their approach. It was about the impact of the work. So, you know, so what's, what's interesting about that real quickly is that, um, that the things that you described, right. Talking, talking to the sort of the end user, a client piloting data driven, who else is out there doing great work? I mean, those are, those are foundations to good program design, (laughs) you know, and when you do that, like the, the case for support is just, it, it makes itself. Um, yeah, it was, and, uh, Kathleen Kelly Janice out of Stanford has written a book called social startup success, which talks, she is like carrying the torch for piloting. Um, yeah. and, and boy, doesn't that go back to the whole world of humility? Gosh, God forbid you should pilot something that doesn't work. Right. If you're a type A right. high performer used to getting 95s on your book reports, it's, it's all in the setup. Actually, you can make a pilot feel really, really smart and say, we may learn this. We may learn that. Um, but either way, we learn, and that's a good thing for our organization. So, um, exactly right. Um, so, yeah. Mike, yeah. So, we're talking to Phil Buchanan, who's the president of the Council for Effective Philanthropy, also known as CEP, a passionate advocate for the importance of philanthropy and the nonprofit sector. He's been he was the organization's first CEO in two thousand one, and the author of Giving Done Right: Effective Philanthropy and Making Every Dollar Count. Um, so those kinds of things we talk about, pilot, data-driven, all of that kind of thing, it makes it feel like you have to be a big organization to engage in that kind of strategy that will bring um, large funding to you. Uh, and so can you talk for just a few minutes about the sort of the challenges smaller organizations uh, f- uh, find themselves in in this regard, or do they? 
Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think it's smaller organizations, but also individuals are going to be in a position where they have to benefit from the knowledge that's out there. They're not going to be able to, to run, run pilot tests or um, convene groups of folks to talk about potential different approaches. And I think that uh, people often um, underestimate how much is known about, about what works. Uh, right. And, and, and so um, I try to point people in the book to the, to the various resources that, that exist. Um, obviously uh, it, it's a, it's a fragment, it's a big diverse fragmented world, you know, but it, but, it, but if you care, for example, about um, helping folks uh, not die of diseases that they don't need to die of in developing countries, mm-hmm. there are great resources like GiveWell and others where you can research uh, which organizations are particularly effective uh, in doing that. If you're a, but let's say you're not an individual, but a, a smaller foundation and, and, and you want to do something about um, diabetes, for example, well, you don't have to go out and do a bunch of research studies. You can learn that certain protocols are more effective for diabetes treatment. And you can do what New York State Health Foundation did in their work on diabetes, which is not to rerun all the, uh, you know, randomized control trials or clinical tests, but just fund what had been shown to work to expand it uh, to, to reach more people. And, and as an individual, you can, you can ask uh, any organization, uh, and, and, and really in many cases, you should just be able to find the answers on a website the questions, what are, what are you trying to do? Uh, how do you do it? How do you know that it works? Uh, and how do you learn and improve as you go? And, and, and there, are, there are many organizations that have really compelling answers to those questions. And if they do, then you can give with some confidence to that. It's interesting to me. Uh, I uh, I wrote on my n- note card here. Sometimes the heart drives the head, and sometimes the head drives the heart. Right. So, yep. like, I care about. I oh my goodness, I care about obesity. It's just such a big issue in our in, in our world, and it, it it's driving rates of diabetes through the sky, through, through the you know through the roof. Right. And so I do my homework. I find a couple of organizations. I reach out to them, and then I start to actually create some kind of a bond or a relationship and those organizations that start to, to, to give that back to me, then, then it becomes more than, more than just an investment. It becomes, you know, investment in certain kinds of outcomes. It becomes, I, I care about this organization. I care about the people they serve. I really care about the person who runs the organization. And then th- sometimes the opposite happens. It feels to me, see if, see if, if you agree with me, right. <clears throat> I, I, I fall in love with an organization because someone introduces it to me. I, I didn't even know about the magnitude or scope of the the challenge or the problem that they're trying to solve. I just was, yeah. uh, you know, I stumbled into it and I just, I, I just felt magical to me. And, um, and that leads me to learn and know more. And so it feels to me like it's sometimes, does it kind of sometimes ride both ways, either way? Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. I mean, I think it's, it's, relationships are so important in getting anything done, um, and in learning and, and yeah, I think it's, it's the, the, I think it's exactly as you describe, and it's a constantly sort of iterative thing. And, and one can't be too absolute about, about, about this stuff. I mean, uh, it makes me think of, of the way my own thinking has evolved about, about goals. 
uh, in philanthropy. And uh, I, I used to believe, and I still mostly believe, that focus is really important, that you can't do too many things well. And I, and I do believe that. And at the same time, in philanthropy, it's really complicated because sometimes you try to stay focused and then you realize that the issue you're working on is deeply connected to another issue. Correct. <laughs> and that, you know, and, and there's so many examples of that. I, um, I talk about a, a couple, uh, Mark and Leslie Silcox, who I think are very thoughtful donors who supported really um, excellent schools that were providing opportunity to low-income kids and achieving really great results. And they felt great about all of that. And these kids were graduating and then they realized many of them were unable to go on to college because they were undocumented and therefore not able uh, to receive aid. And then they started uh, supporting the Safe Passages Project in New York, which provides pro bono lawyers to undocumented uh, children who need uh, representation. And, and so you, you need to stay focused on the one hand, but not be sort of myopic. Uh, even Bill Gates, I think we've seen start out and say, I'm focused on global health. We're not going to focus on global development. Right. And then over time, a realization that you can't do one without the other. So this stuff is, all of this stuff is iterative and complicated. And, and anybody who wants it boiled down to a simple formula, you know, is going to be disappointed. Um, the key, it seemed to me the key um, words you used in this, in the, the story about the couple is they learned Right, right. Exactly. They learned that um, that they couldn't get into college because most of them were undocumented, and that's a receptivity to understanding the issue. And I think it's also to um, uh, being uh, perceptive enough to see to help to either understand or be open to understanding what the root cause of the issue is. Right, it feels like that's really you know that's really an uh, important piece. So. In the book, you talk about um, seven pillars of effective philanthropy, and we don't have a ton of time, And but I also, I, I want listeners to have an appetizer here. So um, either you can pick a couple of them or you can run through them with some speed, but I, I, I want people um, to be um, uh, compelled to get a copy of your book, Giving Done Right. Well, thank you, Joan. And I should say the seven pillars, which are really about nonprofit uh, high performance. That's right. As opposed, come actually not from me, uh, but from the Leap of Reason group, which is a group uh, that I, I was one part of, but but played a very small role in. Which is a group of nonprofit leaders that Mario Marino convened to try to define uh, high performance within nonprofits. Yes. Uh, and so, so they they talk about uh, courageous, adaptive, uh, executive, and board leadership is one, disciplined people-focused management, uh, well-designed, well-implemented programs and strategies, financial health and sustainability, a culture that values learning, internal monitoring for continuous improvement, external evaluation for mission effectiveness. And, and there's much more, uh, I, I explain them in the book a little bit more, but also on the Leap of Reason uh, website. And, and I think that's a great um, sort of template for organizations to do a a self-assessment and say, how are we on each of these dimensions? And nobody is doing great on every one. There's always work to be done, but it's also effect. It's also helpful for donors uh, as they're supporting organizations to say, where 
where do they, where do these organizations need more help and what can we do as, as givers to support them in getting better? Yes. And I, I knew that they were about uh, the factors that define excellence in a nonprofit. And I was thinking about it as, um, you know, I asked you at the beginning of this conversation about the ideal avatar and uh, of the of the person you were writing this book for. And I do believe, uh, so I have been a nonprofit CEO. I am a, currently a donor to organizations. And I found that those, that those pillars um, offer a really good way of an organization to think about itself and how it ought to prioritize, especially, you know, I talked about small organizations. Organization, right? Even if a small organization took that and they, they don't have to have, you know, a massive, you know, uh, program evaluation uh, metrics, but you can, you can hit those markers regardless of the size of your organization. And they are also conversely good ways for um, funders to sort of assess how a particular organization is, is, uh, is doing. Agreed. Um, any last uh, any last pieces of uh, sort of insights or advice that um, that you'd like to share? Like if you imagine that you're talking to that potential funder out there, what do you what do you want to? You wrote a whole book, but what, what would you like to? You know, what advice do you have for them? As a final well, thought. I, I- yeah, I mean, I think we've covered a lot of it. I mean, Joan, you keep pointing out, and I think it's absolutely right uh, that it's all about learning and and the the humility to recognize what you, what you don't know uh, and constantly be open to learning and improving as you go. Um, it's about relationships as we've discussed. I mean, in the, in the book, I, I try to provide uh, guidance along each of the big four dimensions that I see of what it takes to be a good donor. So, you know, being smart about choosing goals, finding the right strategies, implementing well, which means understanding that you're working with a bunch of different other actors, if you're going to get anything done, and then learning and assessing and improving as you go. But underneath it all, as we've been saying through this entire conversation, it's about the humility to learn over time. One last thing before I'm going to read something from your book as we close out, but um, I think there's another piece too, um, is that I, as a donor, I don't, I don't want to necessarily get smitten with an executive director because they're charismatic. Right. At the same time, there is a certain kind of leadership I'm looking for as a donor that inspires me to give, um, that, uh, the ability to, I don't, the word evangelize is coming to my mind to evangelize for cause, to educate people publicly, to write an op-ed. Those kinds of things are so important for an organization, right? So you've talked a lot about some of the metrics and the strategies, but I also think there's that undefinable characteristic of leadership that feels really relevant to me as a donor when I think about um, why I give to one place versus another. And I just wonder if you wanted to just comment on leadership as a, as a component of, uh, you know, sort of people's thinking about, uh, their philanthropy. Yeah, I, th- I think it, I, I guess I've come to believe that, um, there are a lot of different, um, ways to be an effective leader, whether in the nonprofit or corporate world. And, Indeed. and, and I, I do think, um, it's crucial that the person who's ultimately responsible, you know, to the board for the organization is somebody that the donor really trusts and believes in. And I also think 
we focus too much on the ED or CEO. And so sometimes you will have somebody who who's number two is the is the is the one writing the op-eds and yep. and the and the executive director has a, a different or maybe more introverted style, but is able to chart the the direction for the organization and and really has the trust of the of the board and the staff. And there isn't there isn't one I think there are certain qualities that that all effective leaders have in terms of level of integrity and uh, it, it sort of focus on results, a belief in the importance of mentoring and developing others, and 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 so on. But then how that manifests itself, um, I think we, I, my own view is we put too much weight on sort of this charisma that that sometimes actually gets us into trouble because people can have a lot of charisma and very little integrity. Totally. That's totally true. I, I, yeah, I guess maybe what you're talking about is that the institution has to sort of demonstrate a kind of leadership and, uh, and that can, that can take many different kinds of forms. Um, Yeah. That's a good way of saying it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I, I just want to just, um, I was struck at the very beginning of your book, and this is, I guess, how I'll just kind of close out here, and I'll just grab a couple of things you said in the very beginning of your book. Oh, actually, this is actually um, this is actually from the forward that was written by Darren Walker uh, from the Ford Foundation. He says, we live in a time of many urgent challenges. Um, he goes on to say, these challenges seem daunting on their own. They may even appear insurmountable when we consider the finite resources we have to solve them. Yet what gives me hope is that people from every walk of life see these problems in their local communities, nations, and world, and ask, how can I help? Um, And uh, I think at its core, that's what your book is about. How can I help? And um, I I, I just want to say thank you for helping people to understand better about how they can help and what help looks like. So thank you so much. Thanks, Joan. I I had fun talking to you. I appreciate the chance to do this. To do this. Likewise. And so this is, um, the book is Giving Done Right, uh, Effective Philanthropy and Making Every Dollar Count. We'll put a link to this under the show notes, but you of course could find it in Amazon and um, feels to me like it's um, uh, any nonprofit leader. And I consider a nonprofit leader to be a person who works at a nonprofit, somebody on the board or somebody who leads with their with their giving, um, will find something in this book that will uh, allow them to learn more, which feels like pretty essential to philanthropy in general. So, Phil, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I hope you have found this to be helpful and that you didn't try to take notes while you were on the elliptical machine, if that's where you are. And as always, thank you so much for joining me. And even more importantly, thank you so much for the work that you do to change the world in ways large and small. Take care. We'll see you next time. Joan Gary's obsession with supporting your work takes many forms. Subscribe to her blog at JoanGary.com, reaching over 100,000 visitors monthly from over 170 countries. Explore the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, the best online resource for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits at NonprofitLeadershipLab.com. Join 15,000 kindred spirits on Facebook at Thriving Nonprofit with Joan Gary.